Hey, Bill. Great to see you. Well, thanks, Lamar. It's great to see you, too. Boy, we got a gorgeous day. It couldn't possibly be better. I do appreciate your willingness to uh, set aside such a big chunk of your Saturday afternoon, too, to help me get that boat in the water finally this season. Lamar, I told you before, this is not a chore. I love the water, and I love boats, and I've been looking forward to this all week. I managed to get a couple of my inside repair projects finished up this morning, and I'm ready to be outside. Hey, uh, by the way, I'm sorry I had to cancel lunch yesterday, but maybe this works out even better. We can kill two birds with one stone. You know, I think it is better. Uh, as you know from last year, there's nothing all that tough about getting the boat in the water, but it does take two people. Uh, by the way, you might be interested. I read the uh, 70 pages in that book by Josh McDowell that you got for me. As a matter of fact, I read it a couple of times. Well, what did you think? Well, he, uh, he's a good writer, it's uh, clear, and the evidence is pretty impressive. In fact, the second time through especially, I was having to admit to myself, uh, you know, this may have really happened. That kind of information, I suppose, could make a believer out of you. Well, that is, uh, that is the point of it all, but uh, somehow I sense you're not convinced. Well, I'm not rejecting it all. In fact, the whole thing fits together amazingly well, and it did make a lot of sense, your comments and Josh McDowell's writing. I, I, I do have this one nagging question, though. Oh, really? What's that? Well, uh, although there is good corroborating evidence outside the Bible, most of the evidence that we are talking about with respect to the resurrection and belief in Christ, etc., it comes from the Bible itself. And how can you be sure that the Bible is right? I mean, it's hard to imagine that there weren't historical errors in a book written centuries after the events actually occurred. Besides, it's it's been copied and translated so many times, there's no telling what the original might have really said. I've seen uh, things drift with the uh, retelling. I guess, to be intellectually honest, I just have to call into question the legitimacy of a document that's uh, this old, and, and that then being the basis for the entire belief system, and you're staking your life and eternity on it. Well, you're right. The Bible is the basis of Christianity, and if it's not reliable then Christianity has no credibility. Well, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm relieved that you agree with me about the importance of the question. Um, several years ago, a neighbor invited me to a Bible study, and I asked him the same questions about the Bible. Well, what did he say? He said that if I would just begin reading the Bible, that it would somehow prove itself to me, that I would come to know that it was the truth. But I want something more objective, something more than a feeling and, and I was hesitant to commit the time and energy to something that I had serious doubts about in the first place. And besides, the Bible's not that easy to read for me. Well, at some point in the investigative process, you really do need to read it for yourself. That much I agree with. And most people never have looked at it firsthand. However, I also very much identify with what you've expressed as a need for some objective evidence outside the Bible itself. And I believe that archaeology gives us exactly that kind of data. Archaeology? You mean like Harrison Ford and uh, <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark? This, this could be more interesting than I thought, if that's what you're talking about. Well, perhaps if we could uh, somehow manage to extract all the, all the Hollywood hype, 
real archaeology isn't usually quite so flashy, but but the last century or two of archaeology really has produced a wealth of corroborative data outside the Bible, but related to biblical information like, well, like the people the Bible mentions and certain places, the politics, battles, cultural practices, as well as geographical locations like cities and rivers and mountains. So are you saying then that archaeology proves the truth of the Bible? Well, not exactly, but I will say that archaeology does solidly confirm the accuracy of it. Earlier in the 19th century, there was a lot of criticism that the Bible just couldn't be true because, well, for instance, it mentioned a people called the Hittites. Nobody ever heard of the Hittites. No mention of the Hittites anywhere except in the Bible. Right. Critics said the Bible, therefore, was fictional and mythical and simply made up stories, and, and here's another example of it. However, in the late 1800s, Hittite monuments, along with 10,000 clay tablets from the Hittites' capital city, were discovered by archaeologists. Well, that had to be pretty neat confirmation for those who had believed it all along. But let me ask you, was that just one instance, or are there more occurrences of that type uh, that kind of verifies things? Well, actually, there are a significant number of archaeologists who have gone on record about archaeology confirming the accuracy of the Bible. One of them is a Jewish archaeologist named Nelson Gleck. And his assessment really stuck in my mind. He said something to the effect that there has never been an archaeological discovery that has ever controverted a biblical reference. He said never and ever? (laughs) Wow, that's a pretty strong statement for one of those academic types to make. Well, actually, Mar, that kind of response is not uncommon at all among archaeologists. Uh, One of the best-known archaeologists of recent time is William F. Albright. And he viewed the skepticism about the Bible in the 18th and 19th centuries as being excessive skepticism. In his view, archaeological discovery after archaeological discovery established the accuracy of the Bible as a source of history. You mentioned excessive skepticism, I guess, among the scholars. Uh, Why were so many scholars so skeptical? I'm convinced it goes back to our discussion about the possibility of miracles. Some scholars are skeptical not because of contradictory evidence, but because they reject the very possibility of miracles. And the Bible says miracles occurred. So they've developed some very clever theories to provide alternative explanations as to how the Bible was put together. In other words, it couldn't be true because it talks about these miracles. You think their bias really affects their judgment that much? As a matter of fact, I do. There's a story I like about a man who was in a terrible accident. Everybody else was killed except him, and he escaped unscathed except for the fact that psychologically he thought he was dead. It seemed like nobody can convince him otherwise. And finally, one of his doctors asked him an interesting question. He said, do you believe that dead men bleed? The man said, why, no. Any fool knows dead men don't bleed. The doctor said, aha. And he took the guy's finger and he squeezed it and stuck it with a pin And, of course, a trickle of blood came down the guy's finger, and he looked at it, and he said, By Jove, dead men do bleed. (laughs) Well, he was a hard case, wasn't he? Uh, So your point is that some scholars may be so committed to the position that there is no such thing as supernatural intervention into life that they're not objective when they look at the evidence. Exactly. The Bible contains supernatural elements, and because of that— Some scholars won't 
really consider any evidence, no matter how strong it is, that the Bible is reliable. For the open person, however, archaeology has undercut that bias, and it's left us with an objective basis for concluding that the Bible is extremely accurate as a historical document. Well, that's the kind of evidence that I've been looking for. But what about the fact, Bill, that at least as I understand it, we don't have any original manuscripts of the Bible, only copies. That's right. But what if they got the basic uh, historical information copied right, but they miscopied important theological concepts? A missed word or two could make a real difference. How do we know? Well, that's another great question, and one for which, fortunately, we have lots more of that hard, objective data that, that you've been asking for. You mean they've discovered the originals somewhere? No, no originals. But we have so many copies that all the mystery is gone about what the originals actually said. Scholars who criticize the Bible don't do it on the basis of the fact that we don't know what the original text had to say. One of the greatest archaeological discoveries of our time was the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls found in 1947 by a shepherd boy. I've heard of them. I was born that year, as a matter of fact. In addition to my birthday, what's the big deal about the Dead Sea Scrolls? <laughs> well, most of the books in the Old Testament were written between 1500 and 500 B.C. And until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest manuscript or copy that we had of the Old Testament was uh-huh. dated at about 900 A.D. Well, this means about a 1500-year gap between the writing of the prophet Isaiah, for instance, who wrote it about 700 B.C., and the earliest copy that we have. Now, uh, a lot of errors could have crept into the many copies made over a 1,500-year period. That's my point. Exactly. But the Dead Sea Scrolls contain a copy of Isaiah made about 1,000 years earlier. The question is, how do the two copies compare? Yeah, how does the copy made by a scribe in 100 B.C. compare with the copy made by a scribe in 900 A.D.? Exactly. That's the question. The answer is amazing. Somebody did a detailed analysis and comparison of one of the best-known passages in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, In Isaiah 53, as it turns out, there are 166 words, and that probably means something like 500 to 1,000 letters in this chapter. They found, as they compared, that there were only 17 letters that were different, and 14 of those 17 letters that were different were simply differences in style and spelling. For instance, the word honor. Uh, The word honor? What about the word honor? Well, the word honor used to be commonly spelled H-O-N-O-U-R. Well, now we regularly spell it without the U, H-O-N-O-R. I see. So that leaves only three letters that are truly different after a thousand years of copying process. It so happens those comprise the word for light... And they don't affect the sense of the text at all. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And I'm also glad to hear that I'm not the only one that ever had this question. But even though these differences were inconsequential in this instance, Bill, there were still differences. Yes, that's true. But scholars estimate that over 99% of the text of the Bible is beyond dispute. Okay, you, you gave an illustration about the Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls. What about the New Testament? Because that's where the information about Jesus and the resurrection that we've been talking about, that's where that comes from, isn't it? Well, it is. Regarding the New Testament, in addition to some 8,000 Latin manuscripts, 
There are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts, which is the language of the original New Testament. And these manuscripts contain all or at least parts of the New Testament. The reason these numbers are important is that with each additional manuscript, you get further certainty and confirmation about what the original said. The number of these manuscripts, the quality, the date of them, in the case of the New Testament, is overwhelmingly superior to that of any other ancient document. Ancient document like what? Well, like the Iliad and the Odyssey and some of the Greek writers like Sophocles and uh, Caesar. He wrote uh, the Gallic Wars. The original he wrote in about 60 B.C., but the earliest copy we have dates at about 900 A.D., which computes to a gap of nearly a 1,000 years. And in addition to this, we only have 10 copies of his work. And yet nobody questions the accuracy of the copies we have. By contrast, as I mentioned before, we have over 5,000 copies of the Greek manuscript of the New Testament, some of them dating as early as 130 A.D. 130, but let me ask you, how many years is that after the original? Well, the earliest copy we have is a fragment of the Gospel of John that was written somewhere between 70 and 90 A.D. Now, that means the gap between the original document that John wrote and the copy that we have, the earliest copy we have, is only 40 to 60 years, compared with a gap of nearly 1,000 years in the case of Caesar. Okay, so your point is? Well, the point is this. If you reject the reliability of the biblical documents based on the manuscripts that we have, to be consistent, you really ought to throw out everything that we know about ancient history. All right, but I have another major problem, Bill. Even if I grant that the Bible is historically accurate and that we know 99 and 44, 100 percent is what the original says, it's accurate history, it's accurate copies, that doesn't prove necessarily that God wrote the Bible. You're right. Humans are capable of accurate work, though I admit that some are pretty error-prone. So do you believe that God wrote the Bible in the first place? And second, is there any objective proof of that point, or is this simply where we would have to take the leap of faith? Well, I agree with you again. Accuracy and reliability don't prove divine authorship or inspiration. I think high school history books, for instance, are, are accurate, but hardly inspired. Nor are they very inspiring. Right. In answer to your first question, yes, I do believe God wrote the Bible. You mean that you believe that he dictated what John or Luke wrote word for word, letter for letter? Well, dictation is not the word I'd use. Uh, The Bible claims to be the word of God or God breathed or inspired, which are kind of different ways of saying the same thing. But that's not the same thing as dictation from God. Rather, I believe that God superintended the human authors so that even though they used their own individual personalities and vocabulary, what they wrote was what he intended without error, in, at least in the original manuscripts. Uh, think of it this way. If, if there is a God, and if he created us humans in his image or in his likeness, if he wanted to communicate with us, and if he's created us in his image and likeness, it seems that he would want to communicate with us, then he could certainly get the job done without mistakes if he wanted to. Okay, I understand the uh, concept, and I guess I'd admit that I find it reasonable, uh, possibly, uh, maybe even comforting. But how about evidence? Just because God could give us an inspired book, that doesn't necessarily mean that he did. Well, once again, I agree with you completely. 
So here's some evidence that, that I find compelling. First of all, first piece of evidence that I would submit to you would be the unity of the Bible. It's, it's harmony. The, the basic theme that runs through it from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. Well, how does that prove that God is behind it all? Well, when you consider that the Bible was written with such great diversity, the unity of it all is, is almost shocking and demands explanation. It, it was written over a period of 1,500 years in three different languages by 40 different authors on a host of, of different subjects. The authors were as different as kings and shepherds, tent makers, prophets, military men, government officials, uh, fishermen, and, a, and even a physician. They covered subjects like heaven and hell and death and disease and suffering, the problem of evil, marriage, family, civil law, moral law, history, science, sin, salvation. It goes on and on. The end of the world, the beginning of the world. They not only handled the subjects accurately, they turned out literary masterpieces. Most important, and most surprisingly of all, they harmonized beautifully. Well, if that's true, that would be quite a feat. Uh, But maybe they understood each other and each one built upon what his predecessor had written. Well, many of the biblical authors didn't even have access to what the others had written. But even if they had, consider what would happen if you put the writings of doctors who wrote on medical subjects over the last 1,500 years and you put this into a single volume. Do you think you'd have a unified whole or would it be a chaotic mess? Or or as another example, suppose you took 40 journalism students from the same culture who speak the same language and you have them write on the kinds of subjects that, that the Bible covers. Would that be a harmonized and unified literary masterpiece? Well, I guess that'd be pretty unlikely. Well, it seems to me that only God could be responsible for superintending a project of that breadth over that period of time and keeping it unified around a central theme. A central theme. You've mentioned that before. What do you think the central theme of the Bible is, Bill? Well, it seems to me like the theme that the Bible starts with is the love of God for us human beings. It tells us in the book of Genesis that he created us in his own image. And then it goes on to explain how his beautiful plan for us, you know, he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. how his beautiful plan for us was diverted, and how and why we continue to sort of shoot ourselves in the foot. Well, then we're told about God's great and merciful plan to salvage us. The Hebrew scriptures that are referred to oftentimes as the Old Testament predict God's costly and ingenious plan, and the New Testament is founded on it. It's the centerpiece of the Bible. And then finally, we're told that this world that we live in isn't the best world at all. It's simply the way to the best world. In other words, the piercing diagnosis of the human condition and God's radical solution is unified and consistent in the Bible from cover to cover. Radical solution? This this radical solution you're talking about, Bill, is uh, one of my problems. I, I look around me and I see pain and suffering everywhere. I see injustice. Uh, the world's a mess. How can we think about there being a radical solution? Well, the Bible and our experience both agree that this is a poisoned world we're living in. I'm simply saying that the antidote to the poison has been injected. It just hasn't taken full effect yet. Now, I've got to tell you, this is one of the huge questions of life. If, if there is a loving God, then how come there's so much suffering? How come this world is so full of pain and sorrow? Yeah, exactly. 
Well, the problem is we're going to be at the lake in a couple minutes, and uh, I think we can hardly do justice to a question that significant and that important in a couple minutes. Maybe we can do that on the on the way back in. For now, I have another point about what I see as evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. Okay, well, where were we on that? Well, the first point was about God being the only explanation for a book with so many parts, and yet we find this harmony and this unity throughout. Right. What else? Well, the next piece of evidence, as far as I'm concerned, and a very important one, is fulfilled prophecy. There are scores of specific, not cryptic or mysterious, but clear predictions about the coming of the Messiah, to say nothing about predictions regarding the the rise and fall of nations and other events fulfilled in history. Okay, I've heard of these predictions, but I've always wondered, how do you know that they didn't just happen by chance? The Bible's a big book, and it's got lots of statements. Uh, Maybe the predictions weren't inspired by God. Maybe they just got lucky. I think that to believe that all these predictions made 500 to 1,500 years ahead of time were just lucky, shots in the dark, I think that takes a leap of faith. Why would that take a leap of faith? There's a book called Science Speaks written by Peter Stoner, and, and he puts together some calculations in there on the probability of just a handful of the Messianic prophecies being fulfilled by chance, and he comes up with a fascinating illustration. He says, imagine that you cover the state of Texas with silver dollars and make those silver dollars two feet thick. Nice thought. (laughs) Lots of dough. He says, mark one of them with a blue X, shuffle them all, then blindfold somebody. What do you think the probability is that they're going to pick the one mark with the blue X on the first guess? Very, very near zero. (laughs) Well, actually, if he did get the right one on the first try or even the 50th try, I'd accuse him of fraud. That's what I mean about it requiring a leap of faith to believe that the prophecies were fulfilled simply by chance. Stoner's calculations show that it's unreasonable to believe that all these prophecies came about by luck. Okay, these prophecies. Uh, what, what about these prophecies? Are they specific? Do you have any examples? Well, one interesting example is the prediction by the prophet Ezekiel about the destruction of the city of Tyre on the Mediterranean Sea, that King Nebuchadnezzar and other kings would not only destroy it, but throw its debris into the water. Well, within about 15 years, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the mainland city, but the inhabitants moved to a nearby island. Mm -hmm. Two centuries later, Alexander the Great took debris from the destroyed city and threw it into the water in order to form a causeway out to the island so his men could destroy the island city. Now, remember, Ezekiel lived and wrote over 200 years before Alexander the Great. Now, there are some other very specific prophecies about cities like Babylon, about nations like Assyria, and, of course, uh, predictions about the Jewish people themselves and and their eventual return to Israel. Are you saying that the uh, formation of Israel uh, following World War II was was a prediction? Yes. uh, The return of the Jews to their promised land was no surprise to Bible students. They expected this fulfillment of prophetic passages. They just didn't know when it would happen. But some of the most amazing and specific predictions are about the Messiah. In fact, there are about 70 major ones with hundreds of details. Well, let me ask, do objective outsiders see these predictions and these details as clearly as uh, Christians do? Or do you have to be a kind of an insider to really (laughs) see it in this light? I remember hearing uh, a Jewish man named Barry Leventhal tell about his journey of faith. 
he had heard several people earlier in his life speak about these prophecies or predictions, and he said he had always assumed that until he looked at his own copy of the scriptures, the Christians were using trick Bibles. <laughs> I can identify. Uh, he recounted his shock as he read Isaiah 53, we talked about earlier. Right. As he read that for the first time and read about this one who had come from a humble family, he would be rejected, he would bear the punishment for others, and even talked there about being pierced through for our sins. He would be whipped, uh, he'd be meek and silent as a lamb led to the slaughter. He was supposed to be buried as a pauper but ended up in a rich man's grave, uh, never committed any violence himself. Every one of these details written 700 years before the time of Christ matches precisely with the purpose of Jesus' life and with the events surrounding his life and his death. I feel like I need to probably do some of the reading on this myself, Bill. Is there any place I can find a a, a list of some of these Old Testament predictions about the Messiah? Well, actually, the the same book you read on evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that book, Evidence of Man's Verdict by Josh McDowell. Right, I still have it. Well... It also contains an annotated list of over 60 of these predictions, including prophecies about Jesus' place of birth, his deity, his final entrance into Jerusalem, his betrayal, the exact timing of his death, the manner of his death, and even the part about the gambling over his garments. Well, 60 specifics. I, I guess I asked for specifics, and that'll, that'll uh, do. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll consider that my next reading assignment. I like the way McDowell writes. It's not that I don't believe you, you understand. I, I just want to, you know, sort this out for myself. Lamar, I think skepticism is healthy. The more motivated you are to do your own research and investigation, the better. I don't think everybody needs the same amount of confirmation, but it seems to me like the more we look into something, the stronger our convictions will eventually be. Well, I think that's right. And, and Bill, I've got to say, I do appreciate your tolerance of my uh, skepticism and that we can talk about these issues so calmly and rationally, uh, you never seem to get upset about my questions. Why should I? I've wrestled with the same questions myself for a lot of years, and I can't think of anything more important we could be discussing. Uh, As far as I'm concerned, I appreciate the fact that you're asking real, honest, and sincere questions, and that you're at least open to the possibility that Christianity might be true. Well, for me, this is really serious. This question about the Bible for instance, is a really big one. As well it should be. It's the basis for Christianity. And you've given me some great food for thought about, you know, the Bible's accuracy, as well as some evidence to consider about the uh, inspiration issue. But on a practical level, I'm, I'm not sure what difference it all makes, since really no one seems to be able to agree on how to interpret the Bible. Seems to me if five different people read it, you come up with five different views. Although I'm aware of many different conclusions people come to, I think the problem can be overcome with a reasoned approach to reading the Bible. Some fair-minded beginning points that we can all agree on, like, for instance, uh, the rule of context. Well, you mean like agreeing not to take a statement out of context? Well, exactly. Some people are like uh, a guy I heard about who was looking for guidance from the Bible. He opened it up randomly, closed his eyes, and stuck his finger on the page. The verse he happened to land on was, Judas went out and hanged himself. Well, obviously that was pretty uncomfortable uh, in terms of applying that to his life, so he closed the Bible and sort of reshuffled the deck and decided to try again and let it fall open randomly. The verse his finger landed on this time said, Go thou and do likewise. 
Well, then he got more disturbed and decided to search again. And and this time, the message he landed on was, what thou doest, do quickly. (laughs) I guess you're saying that it could be deadly if you ignore the rule of context, huh? Well, not usually physically deadly, but certainly theologically. And I think, on a personal level, we all hate to have our remarks taken out of context. We ought to be willing to approach the Bible with the same concern. Taking, for instance, a word in the context of the sentence and the sentence in the context of the the paragraph that it's found in, the paragraph in the context with the chapter, the book, the testament, and in the context of the the Bible as a whole. Well, that that approach would uh, solve a lot of communication problems in daily life for all of us. Boy, it sure would. In law, I'm told, there's an idea called the Four Corners Doctrine, which essentially says the same thing, that you can't just extract one piece— out of context. You have to look at the whole document. Are you saying that if everybody obeys the law of context, that there'd be no disagreement about the Bible? No, I'm not saying that. There are other principles which, like context, further help to weed out the confusion. But there's always going to be some potential disagreement, even if it's minor. Now, on the positive side, I heard a statement that sums up at least my experience of reading the Bible and discussing it with other people, and that is The main things of the Bible are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. I've been in Bible studies with Methodists and Catholics and Episcopalians and Baptists, and and while it often happens that one person sees something that nobody else saw, my experience is that they overwhelmingly agree and end up learning a lot from each other's perspective. Well, let me ask you this, Bill. Do you believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible? Well, if by literal you mean a a stiff, wooden interpretation that doesn't allow for figures of speech, then no, I don't. Perhaps a better way to state it is I believe we should read the Bible in its plain and normal sense, just as you would if you were reading a newspaper. What do you mean? Well, if I wrote you a letter or sent you an email and said that my two-year-old son is a tank, what would be the plain and normal way to interpret my statement? Would you take me to mean that my son has artillery mounted on his forehead and tracks around wheels and instead of legs? Well, no. No, I'd assume that you mean that he is stocky in build and he uh, may be even a little destructive around the house. And Lamar, you'd have interpreted my meaning exactly the way I intended it. The same way when we read that Jesus said, I am the door, the plain and normal principle allows us to understand that he was claiming to be the way into a meaningful relationship with God. Uh, the way through which we enter. Not that he was claiming to be a piece of wood with a door handle and hinges. Okay, I see your point. But how do you know when to take a statement as a metaphor or a simile and, and when to take it more literally? Well, that's a great question, but I think this is also something we do quite naturally and regularly when we read or engage in conversation And interestingly, this brings us back into the need for context. For example, if you hear a friend utter the words, my heart bleeds, you need to know the context to know for sure what he means. For instance, if you're in a hospital, he's just come out of open heart surgery, he's been wheeled through the wrong door and fallen down a stairwell, there's blood on his hospital gown, he comes awake for a brief moment, he sees the blood on his chest and he utters, My heart bleeds. Then it's pretty clear he's talking about literal, physical bleeding. (laughs) Well, I would say so, yes. But if he's in his apartment, 
He's just finished reading a Dear John letter from his fiancée. He has tears running down his cheeks, and there's no sign of blood anywhere. And he and he says, my heart bleeds. Well, then we know he's talking about emotional bleeding, and it may even hurt more. <laughs> right. Lamar, I've invested a lot of time reading the Bible over the years, and and I'm convinced that it's just not that tough to interpret the meaning of the Bible. As a matter of fact, it seems to get easier as I go. I guess I do need to begin reading the Bible. I, I guess that's the only way I can form an intelligent opinion about whether or not its meaning is clear to me. But before committing that kind of time, uh, I'd like to ask you a personal question. Sure, Lamar. You, you can ask me anything. Thanks, Bill. Why is the Bible so important to you? I mean, can't you get enough of the sense of what God is by being out and looking at the stars, or for that matter, by looking inward and examining the conscience that we've talked about that you believe came from him? Well, as beautiful and wonderful as those kinds of experiences are, I'd still like more if it's available. For instance, imagine that we're both looking at a painting that we've never seen before and and that we don't know who the artist is. I'll bet you and I could have a reasonably intelligent discussion about the artist and about what he intended to convey just by looking at the painting. Well, we could pull that off for a few short minutes. (laughs) Now, imagine, though, that the artist walked into the room where the painting hung and began to talk about his painting and answer questions. Wouldn't our understanding and appreciation go to a whole new level? Well, I... I guess you're saying that uh, the world around us and the conscious within us, uh, that that's kind of like the painting and that the the Bible is uh, what? Like, uh, like the author showing up? Exactly. I think the Bible is one of the primary ways that God has used to step into our universe and, and to give us specific information about himself. Not only about himself, but about ourselves and about our world, information that we could never know otherwise. When I read the Bible, I feel like I'm getting to know the God who made me, getting to know him up close and personal, what he's like, why he made us, how much he loves us, how he wants us to to live and that he wants to help us, what our priorities should be, things like what happens to us when we die and, and how we can know for certain that we can be with him in heaven when this life is over. Lamar, when I read the Bible... I feel like the artist is speaking to me and is constantly nudging me to grow and, and to make changes that I, that I need to make in my life. Wow, Bill, would I ever love to have your faith. I'm uh, touched by what you just said because I know how real all this is to you, that your experience with God is certainly more than an intellectual thing or a once-a-week trek to a church somewhere. I don't know if I'll ever get to where you are. But I will say getting my intellectual questions answered is helping. Well, as we've discussed before, it's not an either-or, reason or faith, but both and, faith and reason. The archaeological and the manuscript evidence give me confidence that, that the Bible is reliable and accurate. The unity and harmony of the Bible, along with fulfilled prophecies, are what convince me intellectually, that the Bible really is inspired by God. But as important as that is, it's still not the same thing as experiencing a personal relationship with God as I read the Bible. I not only want to read evidence about the Bible, I can see the need to read the Bible itself. 
And boy, speaking about the artist and his paintings, take a look over to the right and look at the lake. Is that not a beautiful sight? We could not have picked a better day. That's for sure. Now, now let me give you the game plan for what we'll need to do here in a minute uh, to get this boat launched. And uh, maybe if I haven't worn you out, once we get out on the water, we could sort of reopen this discussion? You bet. I'd love it. Okay, here's what we need to do to launch the boat. Now, Bill, this is very serious. Will you help me remember to put the drain plug in? Remember to put in that drain plug. For sure. And, by the way, when we pull the canvas off, be on the lookout for wasps. Uh, We'll need to check the battery.